I invite you this morning to the 52nd chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 52, as you are either turning or scrolling there, let me acknowledge we were intending to have the Lord's Supper this morning, discovered we were missing some needed supplies, an appropriate scapegoat is being sought out to accept the blame for this. In fact, we may have a new office in the coming year on a rotating basis, our monthly scapegoat who gets blamed for whatever goes south any given month. I know several of you would just love to do something like that. Whatever the case, we will reschedule and we will indeed have the Lord's table, just simply not this morning. Now, to our guests, some of you are wondering what in the world you got into today when you went through the responsive reading, because that was dark. There's a reason that book is titled Lamentations, that after I read the 52nd chapter of Jeremiah, it may help a bit. Jeremiah 52, beginning at verse 1, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it, and they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city, there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city. And all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by way of a gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were all around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath. And he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains. And the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house. And all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house, he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive some of the poorest of the people 
and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried all the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the basins and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service and the small bowls and the fire pans and the basins and pots and the lampstands and the dishes for incense and the bowls for drink offerings. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold and what was of silver as silver as for the two pillars, the one sea, the twelve bronze bulls that were under the sea and the stands which Solomon the king had made for the house of the Lord. The bronze of all these things was beyond weight. As for the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits, roughly 27 feet. Its circumference was 12 cubits, about 18 feet. Its thickness was four fingers. You can do this yourself. It was hollow. On it was a capital of bronze. The height of the one capital was five cubits. A network and pomegranates, all of bronze, were around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with pomegranates. There were 96 pomegranates on the sides. All the pomegranates were 100 upon the network all around. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and seven men of the king's council who were found in the city. And the secretary, the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. This is the number of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive. In the seventh year, 3,023 Judeans. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive of the Judeans, 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, Abel Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death, as long as he lived. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, may we see this rightly. Help us, Lord. Our weakness is great. 
our understanding at times small. May we recognize what you do and rest in your good promises. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here at the 19th sermon in the series on Jeremiah and Lamentations, we come to the end. We began with a message on Lamentations to remind us why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet and to see that there is a place for sorrow and lament and that Jeremiah's sorrows were expressions of both despair and hope. And now we come to this final chapter, and the question that begs to be asked is, why this final chapter? It seems somewhat repetitive. We had this information earlier in Jeremiah. But if you'll note, at the end of chapter 51, there is a single sentence. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. It appears that somebody else wrote chapter 52. That the phrase, that statement at the end of 51 is saying, this is all that Jeremiah wrote, this is all Jeremiah had to say. And then we get the 52nd chapter. We have no idea who wrote chapter 52. We don't have to know. We're not for a moment denying the authority or the inerrancy or inspiration of the 52nd chapter, but it helps us to recognize somebody thought it might do some good to do kind of a rounded off summary, if you will, here at the end of the book. We're not only not sure who wrote this, we're not exactly sure what happens to Jeremiah. We know from chapter 43, verse 8, that after, you remember, Jeremiah is imprisoned, and then when the Babylonians crush Jerusalem, they find him among the captives and they free him, and he stays with Gedaliah, who's appointed the governor, in place of Zedekiah as king. And then there is this assassination of Gedaliah and all these officials, and they're carried off, and then another fellow comes and rescues them and then decides that he's going to take them all to Egypt. And you remember how that went? Jeremiah is saying, uh, where are we going? Egypt? You, t you go talk to the Lord. Whatever the Lord says about going to Egypt is what we'll do. So Jeremiah goes and talks to the Lord, and the Lord says, don't do it. And he goes back and tells them, don't do it. The Lord says, don't do it. And their response, the Lord didn't tell you that. Only makes sense to go to Egypt, so we're going to Egypt. But then we find Jeremiah 43, 8. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Topanes, which is Egypt. Best we can tell, Jeremiah dies in Egypt. After Jerusalem is destroyed, after the testing of the judgment comes, all we know are from extra biblical sources that he died there. There's actually one tradition that um, the rebels who had left Judah may well have murdered him in Egypt. 
So we come to this final chapter with a couple of questions, not least of which is why. Why is this here? Chapter 52 largely parallels something you can read in 2 Kings in the 24th and 25th chapters. And the questions about this may be unresolvable. Some of, I read that there was an awful lot of ink spilled over which one came first. Is it the account in Jeremiah 52 or is it the account in 2 Kings? And here's the answer. Nobody knows. It may well then that there was simply a single tradition, if you will, from which they both drew. It really doesn't ultimately matter. There's a major difference in the two accounts. The account of the assassination of Gedaliah is not mentioned here in Jeremiah 52. A minor difference is that Jeremiah 52 includes Zedekiah imprisoned until his death. There's some other minor differences. But what you have in chapter 52 is a retrospective of about 30 years. Bear in mind, Jeremiah prophesied somewhat over 40 years, 40 to 45 but there's also another difference. And it is this peculiar ending, verses 31 to 34. What is that about? Jehoiakim, also called Kaniah, also called Jeconiah, was supposed to succeed his father as king, and he gets to reign a grand total of three whole months before Nebuchadnezzar deposes him, sets Zedekiah, his uncle, on the throne, and takes Jeconiah, or uh, Jehoiakim, off into captivity. Jehoiakim would have been around 20, excuse me, around 53 at the time of his release from prison. So hold on to that. We're going to get there. Now you look at this and say, what does this have to do with me? I mean, first of all, so many weird names, right? I've never met live a Nebuchadnezzar or a Nebuzaradan in my life, at least of which I am aware. Uh, the place names don't necessarily mean anything. And again, this is when the maps in the back of your Bible can help. A good study Bible can help. And it's talking about events, and this is all very dark and all very sad, and people get killed. There's a siege, there's starvation, there's an escape, there's a capture, there's executions, there's a guy being blinded. I mean, you get it, some of the Bible is kind of R-rated. And then why should we care about this guy named Jehoiakim? Well, let me give you an overall picture first. When it looks like everything's hopeless, when it looks like there is absolutely no good news of any kind, we're wrong. Now, you may be right in the midst of that precise moment that in that very narrow definition, it's all bad. Now, that's how it appears. But my friend, when you lift your eyes above the horizon of what you're dealing with, you're going to figure something out by the grace of God that the Lord fulfills the promise of his new covenant all the time. He always keeps his promise. 
even when it looks like everything's going south. Now there's two major, two, two events here, two ways I want you to see the text. Here's the first. The major event explained and expanded. That's the first 30 verses of the chapter. It starts with the account of the fall of the king, verses 1 through 11, 24 to 27. It's the account retold of Zedekiah's capture, his sons, his officials all put to death, him being blinded, carried away in chains, put in prison, but we're told early in the chapter this very straightforward statement, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and he did according to all that Jehoiakim, his predecessor, had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. The Lord is at work here. So we see Zedekiah dies. For all of Zedekiah's wishy-washiness and his attempts at times to try to make everybody happy and his trying to listen to Jeremiah and ignore Jeremiah. Have Jeremiah freed, let him go to prison. Zedekiah appears to me to be one of the most incompetent leaders found anywhere in the text of Scripture. The man can't do anything right. He has no conviction. He has no guiding force in his life. He is the ultimate expression of a guy who licks his finger and holds it up in the wind, and whichever way the wind's blowing is the way he's going to try to go. But it's not just the king has fallen. It's also the temple has fallen. I, I intentionally slowed down to that 13th verse. What painful words. Nebuzaradan, who's referenced here, enters Jerusalem. And he does this all very slowly, very intentionally. This is weeks after the siege has succeeded. It's weeks after they've captured Jerusalem. He has planned this carefully he burns the house of the lord he burns the palace and he burns all of the biggest nicest homes and estates in jerusalem and then you have this lengthy section at verse 17 about very specific things that are taken from the temple. Now, it's not enough for the writer to tell us it was all burned. He also has to tell us about the pillaging. Now, the temple gets pillaged several different times. The Egyptians pillage it. The Babylonians pillage it. There's all sorts of people trying to get stuff out of the temple. Of course, they had to replace things. And the biggest part of this seems to be not about silver and gold, because there wasn't much left, but a lot of stuff that was made out of bronze. And we're told some of this elsewhere, but not all these details. Why... Does the author go to all the trouble to tell us all of this? Well, part of it is to remind us of the glories of the Temple of Solomon. Even by this late date, there is still beauty and wonder. Have you pondered the idea of pillars that are made pure bronze, 27 feet tall, some 18 feet in circumference and four inches more or less of thickness covered in these beautiful decorations but why is this here because a day is coming 
when the story goes on. And the story goes on beyond Nebuchadnezzar, beyond his son, Evil Merodach, to another son, grandson, named Belshazzar. Daniel chapter 5. You remember that story? Belshazzar has a feast. And what's astonishing is he's having a feast, a banquet, while the entire Medo-Persian army is camped around the city of Babylon in siege warfare. And he's trying to carry off this high-handed thing. Doesn't matter. Nobody gets into Babylon. Ain't nobody getting in here. We've got water. We've got everything we need. We've got food. We can last. They'll break themselves to pieces trying to get in here. What he didn't count on was the ingenuity of the Persians who managed to divert the Euphrates and enter the city. But he's having a banquet. and He's having such a good time. He's going to celebrate everybody that Babylon's conquered, including those crazy Jews. And he has all the instruments of the temple, all the vessels of the temple brought in for his drunken orgy and his celebration of his gods, and the Lord busts the party. Now, I know most of you have been very good children when you were kids, and you're good kids now, so you have no idea what I'm talking about here. But use your imagination for a moment, all right? It's one thing whenever you've crossed the line, and you know mom and dad wouldn't like it that you cross the line, and you have a party at your house, or you do something you ought not do, and suddenly you hear the voice of mom and dad, and you realize your days on this world are numbered. The people chuckling are the people who know what I'm talking about. The others have no idea, and that's, I'm glad you were that righteous. This was so stunning that the hand appears, the fingers of a hand, and right on the wall. <laughs> Daniel is so vivid. <laughs> Belshazzar's joints were so loosened that his knees smote together. I love the way the King James says that. His knees smote together. He is frightened beyond words. And then we find the Lord uses that time to destroy the Babylonians and bring the Persians in. But it also tells us something later. Because in Ezra chapter 5, 70 years after this takes place, the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to the one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. Take the vessels. Go back to the land. Hmm. But the crushing reality of the temple destroyed. The people are taken. The deportation is in its final stage. They've been summarized. We're told in verses uh, 28 to 30 of three stages of deportation and then a total number. And I believe this is here to echo for those of the people of God who should have known the word of the Lord from the book of Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 27 Therefore the anger of the Lord kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. 
And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are to this day. He said, that is what you should realize whenever the Israelites are cast out. They defied the word of God Almighty. And here's the consequence. They're scattered. They're scattered. Well, this is all very encouraging, Pastor. Thank you so much. Very much. What now? Hmm. So a major event explained and expanded. Second, a minor character given surprising attention. Who cares what happened to Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, Kaniah. I mean, why is this here? Well, I know most of you who heard my first sermon in this series remember it with great vivid recollection. Okay, don't compound the issue by lying. You don't have any idea what I preached 18 sermons ago, and if I hadn't looked back at my notes, I wouldn't know either. Lamentations, third chapter, is where we preached that day. We're told in verse 31 of Lamentations 3, the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he'll have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. In the 43rd verse, speaking of the Lord, you have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. And in verse 49, these words, my eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees my eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. Now what am I doing here? The last godly king of Judah was Josiah, and he died. Jeremiah's prophetic career coincides with the peak of Babylon's power under Nebuchadnezzar. It's during his reign the first deportation takes place, which included Daniel and his friends. Nebuchadnezzar returns when Jehoiakim re rebels, who's the successor of Josiah, and then dies before Nebuchadnezzar can do anything to punish him. His successor, Jehoiakim, only reigns three months. Nebuchadnezzar deposes him, places Zedekiah on the throne, takes more captives. This likely included Ezekiel. Zedekiah is Jehoiakim's uncle, Jehoiakim's brother. Jehoiakim is a fairly young man, and here he is in prison. Now, folks, think about it. He has been in prison for years. The 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim. Now, look at it this way. The man's been in prison almost 40 years. And then the son of 
Nebuchadnezzar, evil or Evel Merodach, freed him. We don't know why. There's nothing in the text to tell us. But he frees him. He not only frees him, but he's nice to him. And he's not just a little nice. He lets him be part of the royal household and lets him eat the best food. And he makes sure he's cared for until his death. Why? Why is this here? Now, could it be that the writer, looking back at all of this, wants you to read the first 30 verses and go, oh man, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. So bad. They got what they deserved, but this is so heartbreaking. This is just devastating. Yes, you're, you're giving the conclusion. The book of Jer Jeremiah was right. We did wrong. We're dead. We're doomed. We're destroyed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fine. But then this little glimpse of hope. What is the glimmer here? One brother put it this way. The account of Jehoiakim's release comes like the small cloud in Elijah's ministry during the time of drought. Remember, Elijah said it's not going to rain until I say it rains. And when it's time for it to rain, he goes up on the mountain, he starts praying, he tells his servant, go look over the lake, what do you see? Don't see anything. And he prays, look, what do you see? Don't see anything. Finally, he says, go look, what do you see? Well, I see a small cloud, about as big as a man's hand. And then the next thing they know, the cloud has expanded and there's rain falling over the entire land of Israel. This is like that little cloud. Further, never lose sight of the fact that Jeremiah is only part, only part of the larger story of what God is doing in the world. In fact, this is so good. Not because I thought of it, it, it just, it's good. You see this. Go to, hold your spot there in Jeremiah. Flip over a few books. Find the New Testament. Some of you have been dying for me to get back to the New Testament. I'm doing it right now. Ready? Matthew chapter 1. I know those that are scrolling are already there. You anticipate, right? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then you get the genealogy. And this is where some of you check out when you read the Bible. You ought not check out. Look at verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, Coniah, Jehoiakim was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and when you follow it all the way down, the father of Joseph, the father of Jesus, the Messiah. 
Now you've perked up a little bit. Why does Jehoiakim matter? Jehoiakim is the direct descendant of King David. What is the promise to David? One of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. Hmm. Now, well, Zedekiah is one of his descendants and he's dead. Yep. And Jehoiakim dies and he dies in captivity in Babylon. But the story, what God intends to do, is not done. My friends, see in this the providence of God. What an extraordinary thing. The Jews are scattered throughout the known world. Do you see in that that God uses that for his purposes? When the gospel goes out into the world and the apostles and other missionaries go out into the world, what do they find scattered throughout the entire empire of Rome? Every, virtually every community, a Jewish synagogue. Jews scattered throughout the known world. Every place they go, the word, the law of Moses is read. The prophets are read. And they come preaching to them, this Jesus, this Messiah is born. And believers come of that. And not just believers out of Judaism, Gentile believers and suddenly you find a union that was not happening at any other point or any other place where Jew and Gentile find themselves united under the redeeming power of the Holy Son of God. Folks, there's hope here. There was a little glimmer for the people who read Jeremiah in the day. For you and I, we see this not as glimmer but as a laser light, if you will. For it looks forward now, some 500 years, give or take, and sees Jesus. The great, 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 multiplied great-grandson of a king who only got to reign three months, spent decades in captivity, And yet here, oh here, a king like David, but beyond all imagining, not some non-human angelic figure parachuted in from a different dimension, rather the great, great, many times great grandson of the exiled boy king Jehoiakim. My friend in this is that muted but stubborn faith. Even when the land of Judah and the city of Jerusalem lie in ruins, one from David's line still lives. My friend, hear what I'm saying. You see, some of you have this rather uh, hazy, amorphous view of God, that he's just kind of a force out there. And you like that lack of definition, for it saves you from having to answer to such an amorphous mass of whatever that divinity is. But Scripture does not present us, as Mark Dever says, a God that is a formless ocean of love engulfing our every part. 
God reveals himself in the book of Jeremiah and elsewhere as a personal God who is holy and who cares. We cannot demand that such a holy and loving God be so uncritical of people like us. In his love, he will not leave us as the broken, wounded, wrong-headed, self-defeating, and fallen people that we were when he found us. He will love us effectively in Christ. He'll make us better than we are. In fact, he will ultimately make us perfect, just like Christ. That is the promise, Christian. This is the fulfillment of the new covenant. I know a handful of you probably, why did he get so worked up about that 31st chapter of Jeremiah? Because <laughs> folks, if chapter 31 of Jeremiah isn't true, we're doomed. We are absolutely doomed. The only covenant that ever changed anybody inwardly is that new covenant. And that new covenant, Jesus said, is brought about, executed, fulfilled in his death. A Christian, if you wondered why you ought to be excited about Jeremiah, let me give you a couple of reasons, and we'll draw this to a close. Here is one, and one that should just make your heart sing. He saw your need. He saw your inability. He saw your wretchedness and your lack of righteousness. And rather than in disgust turning his face and damning you to hell forever, he sent his only begotten son to do for you and be for you what you could neither do nor be so that by faith in him you are made righteous in the sight of God. Now, some of you aren't Christian this morning. You're still trying to figure out, well, do I need to change my life? Do I need to work at this a little bit? I'll figure it out. No, you won't. I can tell you now, every little thing you've figured out is going to end up in your damnation. Your absolute destruction. Every attempt at self-work, self-salvation is a ladder that leaves you standing in hell. It will never reach heaven. I don't care how high you go up on the ladder, you ain't getting there. The only hope you have is in somebody outside of you, and his name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, crucified, risen, seated on the throne, eventually coming for his people. Believe in him, you shall be saved. Here's the other thing that ought to make you shout, Christian. God will never fight against his church. God will never send his church under judgment. The major difference between old and new covenant is that those who are actually part of the covenant people have actually been inwardly changed. We're real. We're a mess, but we're real. We're not perfect. But we've been changed. And he sees us in his son. I'm not saying the church won't suffer. I'm not saying the church won't be chastened. I'm saying, my friends, there is no such thing as the Babylonian captivity or destruction of the people of God because the new covenant does what the old could not. And the Savior does what no other mediator could do. Here is your hope. Here is your resting place. Glory to the Father 
and the Son and the Holy Spirit who has done for us this glorious, saving work. May we rest in that. Our Father, far too often we don't take time to truly wrestle with the text of Scripture. We'll read things that puzzle us when we don't bother to give it thought. We, too often thoughtless, too often lazy. Lord, forgive us for our for our lackadaisical way of dealing with with your word. Oh, Father, grant to us that we could see the wonders of what you have done. May the lessons of the Old Testament, of the failure of a people, may they remind us of how easily we would fail were it not for your saving grace and the power of your Spirit May it remind us that we should pursue holiness, not in order to gain, but because we have been given absolutely everything. May we have grace, not only in our experience, but Lord, may it affect how we treat others. Oh Lord, make us more humble. Make us kinder. Bold, yes, Lord but bold with mercy. May we never act as though this is our doing. This is by our righteousness. May it always be evident that we point to someone else and that his name is Jesus Christ, our only Lord and Savior. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.